Hello and welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett and I'm joined as always by Max Frost. How's hey it Matt. Going? Hey, good morning. Good morning. Happy post-Labor Day Wednesday. Love to celebrate the workers. <laughs> we interviewed for this Labor Day special Labor Day week episode, Ramesh Panuru on the state of the economy. Ramesh is a writer I've enjoyed reading for a while. He writes for National Review and Bloomberg Opinion. And he's a fellow here at AEI in the Domestic Policy Department. He studies the future of conservatism with a particular focus on healthcare, economic policy, constitutionalism, monetary policy, basically whatever he wants to turn his attention to, he can write pretty eloquently on, and he's very good at making complex issues readily understandable for a wider audience. So Ramesh joins us today to talk about mainly the clash between Trump and the Fed. And within the context of that, we talk about the future of the U.S. economy. Is there a recession coming? Are we headed to a negative interest rate future? Is Jerome Powell an enemy of the people? Yes. All these major topics in economics today. So we enjoy the conversation a lot. We hope that you do as well. So without further ado, here is Ramesh Panuru. Ramesh, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk with you about the war of words between Donald Trump President of the United States, and Jerome Powell, Chairman of the Federal Reserve. So about a week ago, Trump asked on Twitter, who is the bigger enemy, Powell or China's leader, Xi Jinping? So this perhaps is a softball question to start, but who is the bigger enemy? Uh, if I, I think if I had to pick one chairman or the other, it would be uh, the leader of China. It was, of course, a completely outrageous thing for President Trump to say. There's no reason to doubt that Chairman Powell and his colleagues are doing their best, whether right or wrong, to uh, help the U.S. economy. Um, I happen to think that actually President Trump is more right um, than the Fed or has been over the last year. But this is an example of how the president can take even a valid insight and contaminate it um, with uh, his own um, lack of uh, self-control and judgment. So can you do a brief rundown here on the conflict, um, just for those who haven't been keeping up with it, uh, between the Fed and Trump? So President Trump believes that the Fed should be running a looser policy with lower interest rates and possibly some quantitative easing. Um, the Fed was in a tightening cycle from late 2015 um, under the leadership of Janet Yellen and continu it has continued through Powell as her successor. Trump put Powell in the job of the chairman of the Federal Reserve. It continued to raise interest rates raised them uh, for the last time in December. Trump was bitterly critical of that decision. And even this July, when the Fed cut rates back to where they'd been before December, um, he thought it hadn't gone far enough. Uh, and he's been critical of it uh, for that reason. He's argued for lower interest rates and a looser policy for a variety of reasons. One of them is to help him in fighting his trade conflict uh, with China and with other countries. I don't think the president's right or has really thought through a lot of that. But presidents typically tend to prefer looser policies. Um, that was true of Richard Nixon. It was true uh, to some extent of Ronald Reagan, of George H.W. Bush. So there's nothing particularly shocking in that preference on the part of a president. What's surprising is how public uh, and how caustic the president has been and how, frankly, abusive he's been in making his case. 
Yeah. Doesn't this sort of buck conservative economic orthodoxy, though? Because, I mean, we've got this chart in front of us that interest rates are much lower now historically than they have been going back decades. And isn't usually raising rates the fiscally responsible thing to do? For a very long time, conservative economic thinking was shaped by the experience of the late 1970s when you had double-digit inflation for three years in a row, 79, 80, 81. And the danger of high runaway inflation has been very prominent in conservative thinking. And so in the Obama years after the financial crisis, conservatives were very concerned for the most part about quantitative easing and about low interest rates. What's interesting is that Concer- so, concerned that it would cause runaway inflation. Yeah, right, or or other distortions in the economy. And I was um, one of several conservatives who were in the minority of that who thought that a looser policy was justified given the depressed economic conditions of the time. And what's sort of odd in the last couple of years is that our minority has really grown. So the Wall Street Journal editorial page, for example, has become much less in favor of a tight policy than it used to be. Or Judy Shelton uh, or Stephen Moore, two of the people that President Trump has has talked about as nominees to the Fed. Moore's bid was abandoned and Shelton's is still ongoing. Um, but it's uh, it, I, I would say it's a time of flux on the right. Um, I think what's a little odd about this is that the case for a looser policy was stronger during the Obama years than it is now. You had higher unemployment and lower inflation than you do now. Uh, And so if a looser policy is called for now, it was even more called for then. If it wasn't called for then, then it's certainly not called for now. To put the best possible gloss on people's change of opinion on this, um, maybe one way of looking at it is – People warned about hyperinflation and then it didn't happen. And so maybe there's been some learning about um, that pattern and uh, people are are justifiably less worried than they used to be. Yeah. And to be charitable, at the same time, the Greek – Greece had a huge problem with debt as well, right? And I I think that might have weighed on people's minds as well, that that could be a risk just to be charitable about people on the right thinking. Yeah. Well, of course, if you think about the – Early Obama years, that was also the high tide on the right and even on the center um, for worrying that there would be a a reckoning mm-hmm. where the debt was out of control and, and bond market vigilantes would suddenly cause interest rates to spike. And that hasn't happened. I think that we should be concerned about the national debt, but that the problem is a much more kind of long-term corrosion and a problem of crowding out of national priorities as interest becomes a bigger and bigger expense for the federal budget. But the the sort of cataclysmic scenario just hasn't been borne out. Yeah. The I mean the Fed's main task, it, the dual mandate to have high employment and the, or low unemployment rather mm-hmm. and a steady inflation rate. They've hit that, haven't they? Because we just hit didn't we just hit 2% on the inflation rate which you've been aiming for for a while and employment's at a historic or unemployment's at a historic low. So isn't the Fed doing a pretty good job? Isn't that their job to hit those two points? Well, it's certainly uh, doing a good job compared to some of the possible alternatives. Um, So I'd say that the Federal Reserve has done a better job than the European Central Bank 
over the last decade or so. Um, the Fed is doing a much better job than it did in the 1930s when it played an important causal role in the Great Depression. It's doing a better job than it did in the, the late 60s or the early 80s when you had that runaway inflation. I do think that there is, isn't cause for complacency. I think that, that the Fed could have done, could be doing a better job. Uh, I do think it has been running a slightly too tight policy over the last year or so. But my real concern about the Fed is whether its overall approach to monetary policy is going to be able to handle the next recession. And I think that the way that it handled the last recession offers us some reason for concern on that front. So you note that we're just about on target in terms of unemployment uh, and inflation. But for a good stretch of years over the last decade, we weren't. We had, uh, I guess, two problems. One, we had unemployment that was too high, uh, and then an underestimate of how low you could drive unemployment without causing serious economic problems. And then second, you had inflation that was persistently below target. Now, there are some people who would argue, well, what's so terrible about having lower inflation? There is a reasonable argument for that, but it does seem to me that if you're going to have a target, it needs to be a target. Uh, and if your unemployment is too high and your inflation is too low simultaneously, that suggests your policy is too tight. And yet, given that conjunction of indicators, the Fed was repeatedly signaling that it was going to tighten policy and, in fact, actually tightening policy by raising interest rates. Um, so it does seem to me that there are some problems with the monetary regime um, that need to be looked at. How would they? So how would they possibly fix that then? Are you concerned about – because, I mean, don't some people say that the problem with cutting rates now is that we have less room to – less ammunition when the next recession comes where if rates are too low now, you can't cut them as much later and then you can't fight the recession as effectively – is that what you're talking about when you say the Fed doesn't is it might not be up to it or can you elaborate on that? Well, uh, that is a common argument. I think that it is the wrong way of looking at things. Um, so I think what mark markets have in a variety of ways been signaling over the last two years is that the neutral or natural or equilibrium interest rate, um, the rate at which rates are neither contractionary nor stimulative has been falling. And so in order to maintain the same stance of monetary policy, the Fed has to sort of chase that neutral rate downward. And if you don't do that, if you have that means that you are as the the central bank, you are choking the economy and you're driving that neutral interest rate further downward. So it's actually creating less room for you. And I think you can see this kind of effect um, in the data. So in December, when the Fed hiked its rate to uh, the president's consternation, if you looked at the Fed futures market, what traders were predicting for where interest rates would be in 2020, 2021 was actually lower than it was before the Fed had acted, which suggests that the market prediction was you've set a policy that is excessively tight. And in the future, you're going to have to correct for that. Just quickly, too, for people who aren't interest rate experts. Like maybe myself. <laughs> um, can you just do a brief description, the mechanism through which cutting interest rates stimulates the economy? It's, I mean, it's, is it primarily that when you lower interest rates, people can borrow easier and then businesses grow? 
this is a disputed, a much disputed question, you know, which channel do interest rates affect um, the economy? And uh, it seems to me, so, so my own perspective on it is that the key way that the Federal Reserve or other central banks influence the economy is by changing expectations of future levels of nominal spending. Um, that is the amount of spending that's going to be done in, uh, in the overall economy. And whether the interest rate goes up or down in a way matters less than what happens to expectations. And you can have an interest rate increase which uh, reduces expectations of nominal spending. And you can have an interest rate reduction which increases expectations of nominal spending. And it seems to me that ultimately it's those expectations – which do the majority of the work. So, for example, um, I, I would suggest December 2018 as an example mm-hmm. of you've got an interest rate hike, um, but the markets react as though it's a contractionary effect. They revise downwards implicitly their projections of future nominal spending. Um, I would I would view the uh, late 2007 interest rate reduction at the cusp of – or actually at what turned out to be the beginning of the Great Recession as the exact opposite effect. The Fed's cutting interest rates, but the markets think it's too little, too late and revised downward their expectations. What the Fed ought to be looking at, whether it's using open market operations, regardless of how it's envisioning interest rates – um, as a means toward the goal, the goal ought to be to keep nominal spending growing at a steady rate. The Fed can, I think, do that, and it can't really do more than that in terms of stabilizing the economy. Yeah, and so we also hear sometimes that the Fed, when they want, they want to keep the economy from overheating, in which case they will raise rates. Are we seeing signs yet that the economy could be overheating? And if not, I mean, we're seeing unemployment at one of its lowest rates in a long time. Wage growth is ticking up a little bit. Assuming the trade war eventually gets sorted out, wouldn't it, would then we'd be seeing a point where the economy is overheating, or no? So, if you take the the view that I've outlined here very, in very brief form, then what you'd be looking at is is nominal spending accelerating mm-hmm. uh, or decelerating, and uh, how are expectations of it changing? Um, we don't have great indicators of those, but it seems to me that uh, to the extent we can tell what's going on there, we've we've been seeing some deceleration and that that is an argument for a somewhat looser policy. And, and so much of the time, if the Fed signals that it has a proper understanding of that and it, it is shooting for, for – it wants to go in the right direction, you don't have to make quite as Herculean uh, a concrete step um, to get there. If the market doubts that you're committed, for example, you might have to make a lot of asset purchases um, to show that you are uh, committed to loosening. Um, but whereas if the market believes you, then then the the expectations are self-forming yeah. uh, and it, it helps you get you where you want to go. Is this deceleration, do you think, more the result of the uncertain trade policy or the too tight monetary policy? Or maybe a different way of asking that is, what would be a bigger boost to the economy, cutting rates again or ending the trade tariff uncertainty? So when I've thought through the uh, – when I've written about the um, Great Recession, hmm. I've been a contrarian also in arguing that it fundamentally wasn't the result of um, uh, the housing boom and bust cycle. That in fact, if you look 
the housing boom peaks in 2006, and it uh, and housing construction um, starts declining for two years without having a huge macroeconomic effect. And what really causes the economy to go into a free fall is a bad Federal Reserve policy. I think of the trade war as somewhat similar in that it is contractionary. Mm -hmm. Um, It's having a lot of negative microeconomic effects uh, in particular parts of the economy. Um, Think about companies that are paying higher prices for their inputs because they're relying on imported inputs or um, on inputs for which there are import competitors. But the way that becomes a more general economic downturn is that uh, it reduces the neg- it reduces the neutral interest rate, and the Fed doesn't respond properly. So it seems to me you sometimes have this debate about whether the Fed should try to um, counteract the effect of the trade war. Yeah, uh, and I think the Fed can't undo all of the damage that a trade war does. Just as you know, any other kind of bad economic policy can't be undone by the Fed. If the if the Congress raised the minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour, you know the the Fed can't be expected to undo the increase in unemployment that would result from that policy. Um, but the Fed can be expected not to compound the damage from that policy. And when the Fed reduces interest rates in tandem with, let's say, the market interest rate falling, that, it seems to me, is, is the Fed just keeping things on an even keel. Yeah. So if people are concerned about an economic slowdown because of the trade war and Trump and some of his backers are concerned that the Fed isn't supporting him enough on this. What's to stop him from pushing through a fiscal stimulus in place of a rate cut to counteract negative effects of the slowdown? It seems to me that the uh, the argument about fiscal stimulus has to incorporate um, the response of a central bank. So if you believe that running a larger deficit will cause the Fed either to raise interest rates more or to cut interest rates less than it otherwise would do, then you haven't achieved anything through the fiscal stimulus. Mm-hmm. All you've done is changed the composition of economic activity and made more of it government-centered um, and less of it private sector. It seems to me that that you've got a sort of a last mover issue where countercyclical policy just ends up being the purview of the Federal Reserve. Um, and absent circumstances that are unusual and maybe non-existent, the legislature just doesn't have uh, power over the business cycle. Is that what happened with the tax reform cut, do you think, where we passed this huge fiscal stimulus in the form of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and then the Fed kept raising rates? Well, we we had a reduction in taxes, which caused revenues to be lower than they otherwise would have been. Mm-hmm. We also had an increase in spending. Yeah. Um, and uh, part of that was a legislated increase in spending, and part of it was just the automatic action of our entitlement programs. And yeah, if you believe that the Federal Reserve is responding to a particular set of um, indicators on inflation and unemployment and so forth, if the increased deficit spending changed that, that unless the Fed changed the way it views its targets or it views those indicators, there's no reason to think that it should have made much of a difference because um, if it stimulates the economy, that means you get slightly higher interest rates than you otherwise would have gotten. L- uh, let me just add to that. That doesn't mean that more federal spending is ever a mistake. So, I mean, the argument that people make for infrastructure spending is that 
you know, we have worn out infrastructure and it'll increase the productive capacity of the economy to build more of these bridges. To the extent that's true, and I'm skeptical of it, but to the extent that it's true, there's a kind of supply side argument for the additional spending. I just think there's no kind of demand side uh, countercyclical argument for it. So, you know, everyone now that they talk about whenever Trump says anything about the Fed or Powell, it's like, you know, it's a crisis and mm -hmm. Fed independence is being challenged and then, you know, they compare him to Turkey, Erdogan and Turkey and all stuff. What's the historical precedent for such a clash between the executive and the Fed? The idea so, – so people talk about this norm of presidential non-interference with the Fed. It's a pretty recent norm. It's really over the, pre, the last 25 years that that has become quite as sacrosanct as it has. Presidents Johnson and Nixon and to a l much lesser extent Reagan and George H.W. Bush didn't feel much compunction about um, expressing their views, sometimes in public, sometimes in private about what the central bank ought to do. I think it's, it's kind of hard to get too worked up over it in principle. One of the main ways the government affects the economy is through the central bank. And it's kind of hard to maintain that in principle that elected officials shouldn't be saying anything about that. At the same time, in practice, that norm does appear to be useful. Uh, markets seem to think that policymaking will go better if uh, the president and the Congress leaves the central bankers alone mostly to do what they're going to do. And so I thought it was quite interesting in December of 2018, keeping in mind that it's always a little bit of a fiction to attribute thoughts to the market. Yeah. In December of 18, the markets, I think, were clearly indicating that the Fed had made a mistake either by signaling that it was going to raise interest rates in the future or by raising the rates the way it did. But it also basically freaked out when it was suggested that Trump might fire Powell over it. So you saw, in a way, I think, the market suggesting that Fed independence was valuable even in an, even on an occasion where it thought that the Fed was wrong. Mm -hmm. and I think there's some wisdom in that. Yeah. So, well, sorry, my, my next question is going to be, say we wake up tomorrow, there's a Trump tweet, you know, Powell, get out of there, you're done, you're fired, <laughs> and he puts whoever else in charge of the Fed. I mean, what, could, that, could that spark a recession, the uncertainty caused by that? Or is that overblown? You... Uh, let me just put it this way. I would not like to see the natural experiment done uh, in this way. But yeah, I think that uncertainty can lead to panic. Panics can be self-correcting, I mean, self-reinforcing, particularly if the central bank isn't there counteracting it. Uh, I think that's that there are different pathways you can get to a panic that isn't corrected by the Fed that leads to full-scale economic calamity. So you can sort of come up with any number of scenarios. But that basic story, I think, is is very much worth worrying about. All right. We're almost out of time. But since you are very good at explaining complicated economic things to, to non-economists like myself, I'm, I have to know, what's going on with negative interest rates? Because that just seems like one of the most counterintuitive things to basically pay a bank to hold your money for you. What, why is that happening? And why are they so prevalent now, especially around Europe? Well, we have seen a reduction in interest rates globally and over the last several decades. Partly it's because of the reduction in inflation over that period. Partly it may be a reduction in risk premiums, the aging of the population, and a, and a global savings glut. There are a number of reasons people have suggested could cause it. I hadn't really thought about it before, but just recently people have been writing 
you know, what should we be so surprised by this? I mean, if the banks are are providing a service yeah. and holding on to people's money, you know, that that there is a fee for it isn't maybe crazy and maybe in a certain way there have been negative interest rates that have been more historically prevalent than we've thought. We've certainly had an experience of negative real interest rates um, in higher inflation times. What's a little bit unusual now is that you've got negative nominal interest rates and a low inflation environment. Some people have talked about negative interest rates as being a policy tool to stimulate an economy yeah. that's in recession. I I would prefer other means of uh, of stimulating an economy. I think that uh, going back to what we were talking about in terms of the neutral interest rate, I think if you've got a credible Federal Reserve commitment to stabilizing nominal spending growth over time, that helps put a floor under the neutral interest rate, and that in turn puts a floor under the nominal interest rate. So I think we could uh, we could and probably should, for a variety of reasons, some of them political, avoid a world of negative interest rates. But we may very well uh, get there. Maybe we'll get there on uh, President Trump's watch, and then we'll see whether whether he really does like uh, low interest rates <laughs> sure. as much as he has been suggesting he does. If that's the case, we'll certainly get you back on the show to uh, explain what the heck is going on. Um, You're stealing from the other foreign policy <laughs> podcast here at that line. Um, Ramesh, thank you for coming on the show. We enjoyed having Welcome. you here. As always, thank you, Ramesh, and thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please, I know we say this every time, like us, leave us a review, leave a comment like the wonderful Colleen B. on Ricochet, who says, Nick Eberstadt, parentheses, and Mary E., for that matter, are just wonderful to listen to and learn from. A very interesting take on the current state of North Korea. I cannot agree more. Nick is one of the most knowledgeable people we know that we have here at AEI, I think. And his wife, Mary Eberstadt, I also recommend. She's written a lot of essays for the weekly, the now defunct RIP, unfortunately, poor one out, Weekly Standard magazine on just essays a lot of times on religion. And they are also always very interesting. So thank you, Colleen. And everybody, please em emulate Colleen and leave us a review. We are desperate for your affection. <laughs> we, yeah, <laughs> absent fathers or something. I don't know. We, we crave the affirmation. Anyway, I thought that was a great talk with Ramesh. She's uh, very interesting. And the point at the end about negative interest rates, I thought was interesting. I think he was implicitly referencing something I was I also stumbled upon on Twitter recently. There's this guy, Joe Weisenthal, on a Twitter who writes for Bloomberg that has pointed out that negative interest rates might be the norm. Because if you think about it, back in olden days, if you have a lot of money, now we think like, oh, you put your money in a bank and you get some small percentage of interest every year, you know, to for saving your money with them so they can go out and invest it. But historically, when people, if you have a bunch of money and you need, to, you need to store it somewhere, wouldn't it be more likely that you have to pay somebody to store your money in a safe place than to get paid to give it to them? Yeah, there's, I mean, I think there's a lot of places, especially like in the developing world where they don't have, when they don't have banking systems. Yeah. And that's what, because if you just don't have a safe place to store it, the risks are so high of it getting stolen or of you spending it that they still pay they still pay people to do that. Yeah, like if I just but, had a bunch of cash to dig, I would dig a hole in the ground and bury it. But that would be yeah. But the, but but it's more of a function of not having a banking system. Yeah. You know? Whereas like now the idea of using negative interest rates to f essentially force people to spend their money. Yeah. Although the the only people who are really affected by negative interest rates, as I understand it, are big corporations with tons of with cash tons reserves. of cash they, they just that they just can't physically cannot hold on to and they need to park it in a stable place so it's not like it has an effect on it's not like us you, or me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how you don't know what my checking account looks like <laughs> 
no, well, the one thing I wish we talked more with him about is this idea of politization. Pol- politiz- politicization. <laughs> politicization. See an enemy. <laughs> of the Fed. Because he wrote this op-ed in Bloomberg, which he didn't really touch on. Very modest, Ramesh. Yeah. Very modest. And, um, you know, he was essentially saying that it should be the – it's the Fed's duty not to make a point about the president's policies. Yeah. But to alleviate any, you know, anything bad that may come of it. Yeah, they kind of take it as a given, the political – whatever political winds are blowing, that's a given and they just have to react. And which – I don't know where, like, where I would fall in this argument, but at one point, like the stuff with the China trade war, if you want to say he's doing it just to bring back industry here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm against that. But if there's a national security argument about it, about kind of disentangling the economy from China's and, you know, yeah. we don't want to conti- keep continuing them. We don't want all our supply want, chains in China. Exactly. And we don't want them growing so much. And then is it, you know, are we politicizing the Fed by enlisting them to help with that really foreign policy task that, like, a lot of people would say is the most important thing facing the country. Yeah, I mean, again, just in my pretty uninformed opinion, it doesn't seem like it'd be the Fed's job, especially when there's this growing bipartisan consensus that China is a major long-term threat. It doesn't seem like it'd be the Fed's job to undercut the president's strategy if this is a long-term strategy of disentangling our economies. Yeah. Know? And like that, I, that, I mean, there, there we should note there is a follow-up Bloomberg op-ed today by Bill Dudley the guy that wrote that, the Federal Reserve governor that wrote that previous op-ed saying that, you know, maybe the Fed should not help Trump win re-election by easing, lowering interest rates. He has a follow-up op-ed today explaining what he meant by that. Full disclosure, we have not read it yet, but he probably did. Walk, it seems like he might, might have walked back his opinion a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of shocking that he actually wrote that to me. But then again, I mean... But he, I mean, he's not the chairman, so... No. The, but yeah, I mean, it does... If China is a long-term threat, then... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know if we have then the Fed get all hands on deck to help. I guess what Trump would want is that he would want the Fed to ease the blow, the short term, short term blow to the economy that would be felt as we ramp up tariffs and ramp up economic, you know, antagonism toward China, which may or may not be warranted. Yeah. Well, as you've heard me talking lately, I'm reading this excellent book about the Chinese, the Communist Revolution in China right now. What's it called? The Tragedy of Liberation okay. by Frank Decoter, I think. Mm. There's an umlaut in his name, so I don't know how you pronounce it. <laughs> is he German or Decoter. something? I think, he's, I think he's Swedish. The he, Tragedy of Liberation could be a great band name, but it also just sounds... <laughs> just nice sounds, heavy, bet, heavy It sounds like band. the ultimate like reactionary, like, you know, Catholic Church, anti-French revolution type <laughs> <laughs> polemic. Well, well, you know, it's interesting. So he, this guy's a historian um, in Hong, at, I think, University of Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, and he wrote this trilogy of books that were super highly praised. This this one, I think, won the Orwell Award. If that mm. says anything. sounds like a great award. When did he write these recently? So this one, I think, came out in 2011 or 2013. But there's a trilogy. There's one about the early revolution, one about the Great Leap Forward, one about the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. There's one I'm reading right now about the uh, early revolution. Some of the stuff. I mean, we. I don't know about you, but never in any of my classes. And I took Chinese politics at school, and you know, world history and all this kind of stuff. We never covered the stuff. We. You talk all about the human rights abuses in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. but so much of the stuff. It's like. It's like when we talk about Chinese history, it almost starts with. You know, maybe Tiananmen Square. Did you take modern China? Uh, you I didn't. Did? Okay, I had that. So we we I took that class. We obviously covered Mao and his rise to power and whatnot. But it's some of the stuff is is unbelievable. Well, I didn't know about this dog thing that you mentioned at lunch. But yeah. So for. This blows my mind. There was a effective dog holocaust where they made all the people register their dogs. And then they went around house to house and killed them. 
as because they're signs of bourgeois oppression. So did that nothing to do with like food shortages or like the dogs are taking resources? So it, it, so it was two things. This is during the Korean War, and they it was it wasn't so much that they were taking the the, the dogs were consuming too much food. Yeah. It was more of like how can you waste food in a time like this to your dog? And then it's a it's a bourgeois hang bourgeois hangover of. You yeah. know, the capitalists or whatever. But just the whole thing, denou- denouncing people as class enemies and then killing them. and Well, yeah, and I mean, the man-made famine killed millions of people too. Yeah, right? I mean, it's amazing. And it's something now, at least this is, this is how I feel. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me. But whenever we hear about like authoritarianism now, it's always, you always hear about it coming from the right. You never hear someone being like... Well, I don't know. I mean, the people on the right always complain about the left. You know? Well, okay, but like in the mainstream media, you think so? I mean, like no one would ever think like, you know, Bernie Sanders could be like authoritarian. You know, he's just like a old, everyone says it. he's like an old socialist or like Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Some Cor- of the stuff that Jeremy Corbyn has said is is frightening. I mean, it's really, it's radical. It's pretty extreme stuff. Yeah. To be fair, I don't think Corbyn or or Bernie is a, a budding Mao, but it is. I mean, it, 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 we, we have never seen, it's never been more likely though that the United Kingdom could elect a just unreconstructed socialist like Jeremy Corbyn to power. There's all this turmoil. I mean, who knows what what will happen by the time you listen to this podcast, but it is highly possible that Jeremy Corbyn could become prime minister of England or the United Kingdom soon. Well, and what's so unfortunate, the Financial Times has had this great, they've been doing a whole series of essays on what a Corbyn British economy would look like. Yeah. But they, and they make, and they made the point that you know, I mean, it used to be people voted for the Tories because it was the party of economic stability and you knew what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And Brexit completely derailed that. So now it's like, how do you even know what's a bigger gamble? I mean, to me, it's pretty clear what's a bigger gamble. It's like. I oh, know. Well, it seems obvious to me. But uh, someone, I think the economist might have had this point or maybe the spectator. Somebody made this point recently that I think it was the spectator that in the last general election that Theresa May called. She, the conservatives already had a majority, but the polls seem to imply that Theresa May could get an even bigger majority. They were talking about like a 200-seat majority for the conservatives. And that might have led a lot of people to think, well, wait a second. You know, I, I, Theresa May, I like her fine, but do I really want the Tories to have a huge lead? And because of that, Jeremy Corbyn did not get a whole lot of scrutiny. This upcoming election, he should be put under the microscope, I think, because now everything is in flux. Yeah, although I remember – I think one day at lunch here, we got in a big argument about um... – you and me are just, just everybody. the whole the whole yeah. lunch table about Corbyn's policies. And afterwards, I looked up some stuff. And the uh, if you look at the public opinion polls, when it comes down to like nationalization of all these different services and utilities and everything, British people overwhelmingly support it. At least in, at least in the polls I've seen. Yeah. Well, I mean that was the case until Thatcher. So yeah. it's not like out of the question to have nationalized railroads and everything. Yeah, but they don't nationalize. Everything. Yeah, there it is. Four day work week. Four day work week. Sounds okay to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll get my pass. No, it, it, <laughs> I mean it, it'll be very. We'll have to have another episode on it soon. We we had a Brexit one not too long ago, and with with all this in flux, it seems kind of fruitless to have another episode. So sorry, do you, so, do you do you know what's happening now that that one Tory defected? Do they have to? Call yeah. So part. So Boris wants an election on October fourteenth, and Parliament has to assent to that. The issue is Labor has been saying they want an election this whole time, but now Labor might not want actually, you know, put their money where their mouth is and say they want the election because Boris has lost their confidence to the House, but the House does not seem to have confidence in any other prime minister yet because the issue seems to be Jeremy Corbyn would be the natural choice because he's the leader of the opposition party, but the Lib Dems might not want to put Corbyn in power and the rebel Tories definitely don't want to put Corbyn in power. And there might be a figure that could be put in power as a caretaker government, government, but the issue would be why would Jeremy Corbyn assent to that? Because if it's another labor figure, 
then by the time that normal times come back around, Corbyn has basically admitted that he's not the natural leader of the party. So from his perspective, why would he back anybody besides him? Well, this seems like, I mean, if Corbyn's going to get it, it seems like it would have to be the time. I mean, everything is in such a state of flux. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why they just seem to have to have another election. Like for all the talk in the in the British press about Boris, you know, being an affront to democracy, if if this is all about democracy, the best way to do that is just to have another election. I mean, that might be the only way. A to, referendum. <laughs> maybe a referendum. No, I think referendums are dumb. But the the only, I mean, the only way to break this Brexit jam seems to, gridlock seems to be to have an election and kind of sort out who does what. And Boris's strategy seems to be the, I mean, ironically, the most democratic one because he, more than any other conservative, it seems like, wants to sort of have the realign British politics on Brexit, leave versus remain grounds. Because the issue before was that you had Theresa May, who supported remain, but then said Brexit meant Brexit. But then in the election, you still had super Brexit pushing people voting for UKIP. And then Jeremy Corbyn and Labour had this whole strategic ambiguity approach to Brexit, where they didn't really say clearly to the electorate what they wanted to do. So it seems like you need another election where you have Boris on one side saying, clearly, we are the party that will leave the EU. And then you have the Labour and the Remain and the Lib Dems saying, no, we want to remain or hold a second referendum. But I mean, not to take this on for too long, but isn't Corbyn anti-EU? I mean, th- people say that, but it's, it's, it's on, but the Labour electorate probably is not. So it's unclear. I remember when I was, it was right after Brexit, I met a couple, it was two men, both public well, I don't know, you know, government school teachers in the mm-hmm. UK. And I would have thought they were kind of, would have been kind of prototypical liberals. Yeah. Um, and they were ardent, ardent Brexiteers. Really? Yeah. And they, they, were, they weren't from London. They were from some, somewhere out in the country. And they just hated, like, the city of London. I mean, they hated all these people. And I can't remember, I can't remember which side they fell on if they were on, like, the far right, far left. Um, so they weren't labor supporters, though? I can't, that's, I, I can't remember. But in, any, but in any event, they wanted nothing to do with the EU. Like they just wanted to get out as quickly as possible. But it was interesting. It kind of it just made me realize there's a depth to it that we don't really uh, that is often kind of skipped in the media here. But. I know. But then the confusing thing too is that the conservatives, a lot of their conservative Brexiteers, they want to leave the EU because they want to become a beacon of free trade and you know strike global trade deals with everybody and be open Britain. Whereas a lot of the labor people that want to leave the EU, their version of trade deals would look incredibly different than the conservative trade deals because the labor trade deals would want to ensure that there are you know, better environmental and labor protections in these trade deals. Whereas the Tories, Tory Brexiteers just want free trade and lower tariff barriers. So yeah. it, it's going to be really tough. And I have, I mean, I don't think anybody has any idea how this will end. Things can end badly. <laughs> I don't know. Boris did speak at AEI last year, and he uh, we have a speech up on the website. That might give, if you're looking for hints at what at how Boris sees the situation, this was still right after he left, resigned from being foreign minister and before he became PM. So people say that was the unofficial start of his you know campaign to become prime minister. And maybe That's what we say here to make ourselves feel important. <laughs> I feel I feel important. I feel important. But it, it could it could give a clue to how he uh, how he sees this and and where this will all will go. So. However it goes, we'll keep you updated here on Banter, and thank you all for listening. See you next week.